Welcome back to Historical Homos, the world's only no-fucks-given guide to queer history. Now, first of all, let me say Happy Hanukkah to my Jewish Jezebels. We're coming to the end of the holiday week. The candles have been lit, the gifts have trickled in, dreidled in, and entire chunks of your soul have been lost at your corporate holiday party. The only way to recover is, of course, with a stiff tonic of queer history. And this week, I'm thrilled to say that I'll be joined by a dear friend, comedian, writer, activist, educator, and power Jewess to talk about an oft-overlooked but deeply fascinating group, ancient Jewish lesbians. Now, the Old Testament is not big on lesbians, not even in a mean way. They just literally don't talk about them, which is kind of even more rude. But if you know how to read between the lines, there's an interesting tale of lady loving to be found. And while ancient Jewish sources, written by men, of course, are annoyingly silent on women who boink women, the clues we do have tell us a lot about the gefilte fishy truth. Fast forward a thousand years and change, and lesbians start coming out in droves. Literally, they are droven, working, schleppin' and schmoozin', because all women were suddenly, get this, finally allowed outside. Lesbians became increasingly visible as women went out into the industrialized world, Jewish women included. And in fact, one story that we'll talk about shows us the surprising acceptance that a Jewish lesbian couple found within the early labor movement in working class New York City. So, get out of your factory clothes and slip into something squirt resistant, because the water is what? Human temperature. Human temperature. temperature. Welcome, Rachel Jarofsky. I am so thrilled to have you on here. It's, I think it was, it's been like a year since we've been talking about doing this together. I'm, yes, it's been a long time coming and thank God it's came, it's arrived. Um, and here we are. I'm just so excited to be here with you. I famously love histo homos and um, just, <laughs> it is, it's a dream to be a part of this right now. Thank you. Histy, histy homos. Um, I know that I want to introduce you a little bit because you are a writer, a comedian. Um, you're also a Jewish educator. What, what does all of that mean? Tell us what you do, who you are, what you believe. Absolutely. Um, sort of at night, um, I am taking to the stage to make jokes about, um, uh, projectile squirting and, um, <laughs> And sort of what's innately Jewish about eating pussy. And then during the day, I um, labor for various Jewish institutions um, and work with children, actually, uh, believe it or not. Um, just kind of um, teaching anything from like 
be mitzvah preparation to Jewish history, always kind of from a little bit of a socialist lens because that's of kind of course. who I am. Um, I'm also a kids TV writer um, and podcast writer. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of like I, I have a filthy sense of humor, but I do work with children. Um, that's nice. And, that's ni it's um, nice to have that balance in life. Get you somebody who can do both. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and, and that's me. But uh, yeah, I simply I I'm I'm a proud queer Jewish woman. I love Jewish history and um, just kind of diving into old Jewish texts. So I'm really mm. I'm really thrilled to be a part of this uh, a part of this Stunning. episode specifically. Stunning. Well, I'm so glad that I was able to curate some old Jewish texts for you. Absolutely. Um, that's that's my love language. I I also find Jewish history very interesting. I love all ancient history. I also, as a young gay boy, realized that everybody around me on the Upper West Side where I grew up was Jewish. So wanting to not be seen as different in any other way, I forced my parents to celebrate Hanukkah at the ripe age of four. I remember going to the Upper West Side Judaica, you know, that um, wow. that store, <laughs> and um, picking out a cute little menorah, getting the candles. It came with a little prayer book as well. So cut to my Aryan ass with literally platinum blonde hair and blue eyes, mm -hmm. leading my family at age four through the... Um, you know, the like written out in English, uh, in English alphabet songs that were in the prayer book. And we did it. Yes. We did it. It was beautiful. You know what? It, it's, it's appreciating, not, not appropriated in that house. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it's just like you yeah, truly, what's impressive is you like went to a Judaica store. So you really did like kind of financially support the, the culture and like put your money 100%. where your mouth is. Like you could have lied to any sort of My mom's of, like, money. Sure. <laughs> yes, 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 of course. Um, good, you know, but thank you. Thank you to her. Um, and you, but you could have just like lied to any sort of like Orthodox Shabbos Abba on the street who's like passing out menorahs. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sure there's like plenty of that going on on the Upper oh, West Side, just sort of like the, uh, you know, payas fleekin' sort of like long coat rockin'. <laughs> Orthodox daddies who are like, are you, you know, they're giving out the menorahs in sort of Times Square and Union Station. Like, it is impressive to me that you kind of sought your own. The, well, thank you. And they're giving out a lot, actually, I have to say. Yeah. And I, one of my favorite things is when, I don't know why, it just makes me feel special, but when you're walking on the street and the Orthodox guys are like, are you Jewish? Are you Jewish? And I, I, I don't say yes. Because, you know, I, I, I'm not a filthy liar, but, right. um, but I do like to be asked and yeah. I, I like to be, I like to be chosen in that sense. Sure. Um, uh, I also had an Orthodox guy in a gay bar recently, um, hitting on me at the Eagle. It's like a cruising bar. It's like, you okay. just go there for like your jollies. Um, got it. this guy was got just, it, got it, got it just hanging out with his dick out really um really going wow. for it in with as you say payas on fleek and wow it was it was a, it was a Shabbos abba trying to Absolutely. trying to talk to you wow that's like 
I, if only I could have been a fly on the wall in sort of that exact <laughs> moment. And, 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 and I'm sort of like, I'm sorry, Bash, why am I only hearing about this now? Like, I, <laughs> this is the type of thing you sort of text me about immediately or sure, at sure, least sure, day sure, after. Sure. <laughs> I, uh, it was a rough day after, to my, <laughs> to my credit. Um, Okay, so we're going to be talking a little bit about the Old Testy, the Bible. I got to be honest, I have not read a lot of it because it is boring. Um, mm-hmm. But I did always love the stories in the Old Testament. I always thought they were more interesting. Shout out to the Prince of Egypt. Um, yeah. To tie us up here, I want to know if you, you, you say you're interested in Jewish history. Have you come across many lesbians or bisexual women or queer women in your reading of Jewish history? I feel like not enough. I mean, like everyone, obviously, like the story of Ruth and Naomi is like kind of a go-to, but that's also like, which we'll be talking about later, but that's also sort of like the go-to convert story, which, you know, we can get into a little bit later when we're Mm. talking about it. So I feel like, honestly, I was, I was learning. You kind of educated me, my Gentile brethren, you know what I mean? Like you kind of, you kind of put me on to, I guess, what is my own history um hell yeah yeah but it's uh no i mean i i think other than like um i'm like hmm any other than anything i watched on transparent um in the year 20 <laughs> 2014 like uh this sort of this sort of uh beautiful outline you have provided me with not to give people too much of a peek behind the curtain um really has been uh kind of feeding my queer jewish history um hunger but but i am kind of in and out of the first testament basically seven days a week um so 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 we got that going on we got that going on for me nice okay well with without further ado let's slide right into that testament act one the story of ruth and naomi Now, you already mentioned the book of Ruth, or a tale of two organic free-range Hebrew lesbians, as I like to call it. This is, it's a short book. It's really kind of in and out as stories go. What is, and and as you said, it's a story about conversion, right? Because Ruth is a uh, a foreign, she's a Moabite, Mo, Moabite, Moabite, I don't know how to pronounce it. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. she gets, she gets brought in to the community of the Israelites through this connection with her mother-in-law. So in the story, she's the, this a little bit overly eager daughter-in-law of Naomi, who is kind of the one who wears the pants, run, runs the shop, uh, a clever, Israelite woman from Bethlehem who figures out how to make her way in this patriarchal as fuck society. Absolutely. And what's, what, what's interesting about these ladies is that they are the Bible's only homoerotic female friends. Like, I guess maybe in the new Testament you have like Mary and some, and her sister or whatever, but like there are they, people just don't talk about women being friends with or loving women very much in right. either Testament. Right. So it's a really rare glimpse into girl on girl love, you know, mm-hmm. be it friendship mm-hmm. or something more in the very male dominated patriarchal society of the ancient Hebrews. So let's get into it. The story goes, there once was a chick named Naomi from Bethlehem. She gets married. She has two sons by her man. But then, surprise, surprise, famine hits the kingdom of Israel. So the family moved to Moab, 
an unfortunately named country nearby. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Naomi's sons then marry Ruth and Orpa, who is a local talk show sensation. (laughs) (laughs) What? What? (laughs) But then, while they're in Moab, surprise again, all the men in the family die, which in ancient times is the equivalent of an actress turning 40. It's just time for you all to retire from society. Bye. (laughs) The widowed Naomi, however, refuses to give in so soon. I told you she was clever. She hears through the grapevine that Israel has food again. So she's like, I'm just going to go back home. She tells Orpah and Ruth to head back to their Moabite families so that she can peace out and eat some bread on her own. After a lot of coaxing and crying, Orpa agrees. But Ruth stays, which to me is already kind of gay because, you know, commitment. But it's like there's no connection really to Naomi now that her son is dead, you know, like uh, in terms of the laws of the family. So and and not only does she stay, but she makes a pretty big deal about staying. So I'm going to ask you to read this very moving entreaty from Ruth to Naomi, which is from like the King James version of the Bible. So I want you to read it with like New York City Jewish broad mother accent. Take it away for us. Yeah, I, th- yeah, I think I can. I think that would sound something like, don't urge me. Don't <laughs> urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Okay, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay your people will be my people in your God, my God. Will you die? I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death, if even death separates you and me. So yeah, I think that's probably something of how it would have sounded back then. That is exactly what they said to one another and exactly sure. the voice. How that they is said a rec- it. <laughs> that is a recording from 600 BC. So um, <laughs> thank you so much for that uh, deeply yeah, illuminating reading. Mm-hmm. Cold reading, by the way. All right. This yeah. is a professional. This is a professional. She just did that. Yeah. Just like that. Editor's note. I did not have to edit that. And I am not lying. So... Let's talk about what's gay here. Um, first, Ruth saying literally, till death do us part. Yeah. I mean, she just, she, she just married her mother-in-law um, of, of her own. She decided to marry her mother-in-law. Which is think, also gay. The sort of incestual nature of it, very gay. Keeping it in the t- in the close, tight knit lesbian yes. circle. Yeah, she's Absolutely. she's like, you're the only other chick I know. We might as well get together. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, so you know, and scholars say that there's nothing queer going on here, but as we shall see, I pro- uh, we protest, we doth mm-hmm. protest. The Book of Ruth then tells us that Naomi and Ruth make it back to Bethlehem and immediately get busy figuring out how to reestablish themselves. So this means finding a man for Ruth because Naomi says she's too old. She's probably like 35 and on death's door. Mm -hmm. By a strange series of events, which I got to say I didn't fully understand, involving feet and a lot of flirting on a farm, Naomi helps Ruth get a member of Naomi's old husband's family, this really rich guy named Boaz, to marry her and knock her up. So 
now Ruth is pregnant and then she has the baby, brings the baby home to Naomi and Naomi promptly becomes the baby's nurse. Okay, I'm using air quotes. Yeah, kind of whatever you need to call it, ladies, you know. <laughs> roommate, the baby's roommate. <laughs> but most cl- most queerly and dearly, the Book of Ruth fails to mention any return to the house of Boaz, even though Ruth is, I guess, technically married to him. So basically, Boaz is just kind of this sperm donor that Ruth and Naomi use um, to get a baby and then Naomi sells her old husband her ex-husband who died like a million years ago sells her ex-husband's estate to Boaz so Boaz also writes them a check for them to just like shack up together and what I think is interesting here also is that this basically reestablishes the family setup that Ruth would have had if Naomi's son hadn't selfishly died in Moab and I just want to pause here, like, if only this is how it still worked today. Like, if only my sperm donor would somehow pay me, that's kind of, <laughs> right. you know, that's kind of Absolutely. the society I wish to see and, and experience. Women should be paid, just period, to have sperm inside <laughs> them at any yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Absolutely. That, that's been decided today. So Ruth and Naomi then live out their days caring for Ruth's baby son, Obed. Um, together, living off the money that they got from the sperm donor. And um, Ruth's son then becomes the grandfather of King David of Israel, who is uh, also kind of gay, apparently, David and Jonathan, but that's a story for another podcast. And David himself is the ancestor of Jesus Christ. So we might say that the alleged Messiah himself has a couple of conniving carpet munchers to thank for his glorious ancestry. Mm. Hashtag two moms, hashtag teen mom, hashtag the real L word. Hashtag the good word. Absolutely, hashtag the good word. (laughs) Now, why should we give a shit about this story? I think, number one, the thing that jumps out to me, and we'll get to the thing about conversion, because I want to hear you talk about that as as the Jewish educatress. But uh, first of all, I just think it's interesting that, like, this is a pattern that we know lots of lesbian couples have followed in history, like before being a lesbian was a thing, right? Two women raising a child together. So I think it's perfectly fair to read some queerness into this tale, whether or not that's what the Hebrews would have, back then would have thought about it. The New, the New York Hebrews. Yes. Um, it, that said, it, the whole thing does have a, have a lot of mom daughter language in it in the, in the old Testament text. Um, so I'm assuming that is original to to the the Hebrew that it was written in, um, and I suppose Ruth and Oprah Winfrey were were considered daughters <laughs> of Naomi because once women get married in ancient societies, they're typically considered members of the man's family because obviously women are a burden and they're non-human, and you want to get them out of your own family as soon as possible. Um, but Ruth is definitely overdoing it when she says that only death can part her and Naomi. And as we said, you know, that really does feel like lesbian love bombing. Um, yes. That that feels familiar. That feels so, like sort of second date language, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. And then, you know, obviously, like, the, lesbianism throughout history has been kind of undercover as well. And so I think it's it's interesting because Ruth's loyalty to Naomi ends up being what convinces Boaz that Ruth is a good chick, right? That she's like virtuous, she's loyal, she's committed to the Israelite community, cause, God, etc. Because um, he, at one point he's basically like, wow, you left your family behind for your mother-in-law. Like, that's amazing. You stayed with her. And Ruth is like, 
totally, I'm so nice. But secretly, all she's really thinking is, this is what Jewish pussy does to you. Like, you you can't give it up. Now, I want to get to what you were saying, because ultimately, the Book of Ruth is about a foreign woman being brought into the Israelite community. Is it like what can you tell us anything about this story from like the Jewish kind the Jewish interpretation side of it? Absolutely. This is a story that well first of all the book of Ruth is in uh, just to kind of give you a sense of Jewish texts. The main the primary like Jewish Bible the way when we when we think about like the Bible the Jews read is something yeah. called the Tanakh which includes the five books of Moses, which is the Torah, and then um, the book of prophets, which is the book of Nevi'im, and then Ketuvim, which is uh, the other sort of other writings. And the book of Ruth falls in the Ketuvim portion. It's in the other writings part, which other things that are in the other writings is the Megillah, which we read on Purim, kind of a lot of classic um, fan favorite uh, Jewish stories come from the other writing territory. Um, but yeah, so Book of Ruth uh, in Ketuvim, other writings, and we really read it, kind of delve into it during the holiday of Shavuot, which happens in the spring. This holiday uh, commemorates, uh, just in terms of, for all of my uh, uh Bible daddies out there who really know the stories. This 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 holiday is in terms of the progression of the Torah. It's after the Jews have um, left Egypt, but before I believe before they've arrived at you know Israel and or you know what whatever ah that word uh and um and it's a ah the i word and essentially during this holiday of shavuot we're celebrating moses sort of receiving the tablets from hashem from god and and jews kind of getting the 10 commandments what what becomes jewish law so it's during this holiday of shavuot that we read the book of ruth and it is really thought uh it is really kind of accentuated as like oh wow the story of the first convert and so for all it's kind of like the 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 story for like it's like the con the jewish converts moment you know what i mean like if you're a convert it's like ooh, this is our story you know um <laughs> for instance my friend's mom converted and it was like you get a jewish name when you can when you convert and the idea is most converts she was supposed to get the name ruth that was like the mm. name that she got it's kind of like the go-to convert name um but i think you can really so you're right. It's like the story of Ruth and Naomi is kind of about accepting the other and the outsider as part of yourself and who you are. But I feel like you can also really look at it from this queer lens of like, what brought sort of Ruth in first? Um, was it Naomi's son? Or was it that good, good Jewish pussy? You know what I mean? Because I, quite mm. frankly, I have a joke that Jewish pussy is chosen and, and frankly, can convert <laughs> like did Naomi's Jewish pussy convert Ruth I don't know I wasn't there but it's certainly like when you read this story it is absolutely food for thought um absolutely and uh and especially when you look at it uh, kind of in the scheme of all these other events that happen thereafter you know it's it's definitely something to consider but yes so that's kind of what's going on i i do love this idea of reading the story of naomi and ruth with this queer lens and maybe it isn't maybe it's just in, intrinsically queer i don't know maybe it's not even a lens 
Yeah. Well, and to me, it's like, it doesn't have to be queer as we define it, right? In in modern yeah. times, it's like, maybe this is an example of what queerness could have been back then before queerness was a thing. Um, you shack up with your mother-in-law, you have a baby, you stay at her house forever and, you know, and you live your happy life. Like, that sounds great. Um, but I'm, it, I'm so interested to learn that this is the convert story because that's something that I always wondered about Judaism is like, how do you like get more people in, you know? Um, cause it's like the chosen people. So obviously this is a, this is a really important aspect of the religion that the other can be brought into the community. Yeah. Yeah. And it's part of like, um, you know, the truth is, is like, if you're converting to Judaism, you're doing a lot of fucking work. Okay. Like you fought for it. Mm. Um, and you know, some Orthodox conversions take 10 years, which is all just to say that like, I, it is cool that, you know, the book of Ruth is a story that sort of pays homage to that labor of choosing to be a Jew. Like it is interesting looking, considering the Jews as a chosen people by God, but w there is also something just as divine as choosing um, to become Jewish um, yourself, mm. maybe, um, maybe equally as divine as being this idea of being chosen. So it is, you know, the idea of choice is so prevalent in, in Judaism and, and Jewish, uh, and, you know, Torah stories, but also, um, you know, rabbinic commentary. And so it's, it's interesting to look at the book of Ruth and Naomi as sort of the other side of that coin, um, a narrative of someone choosing to become Jewish and kind of put on, uh, put on this identity. Yeah. And I mean, Ruth does have, she does have to work for it. She does, they don't just accept her in. I mean, like, there's this kind of rom-com element of Naomi, like, getting her all dolled up to go meet Boaz and sleep at his feet or whatever. And that's how she convinces him that he, she, that Ruth is like, um, you know, a virtuous woman worth bringing into the community. But it's, it's not easy. Uh, it's an arduous path to sticking it out with Naomi. An ard Jewish path and a Jewess <laughs> path. It was like an arduous, an arduous path, and it just shows you these dykes will do anything to get a baby. Okay, you know, <laughs> they played the long game. They play, yeah, I'll marry your son to to stop you, and then I'll fuck someone else to get us a baby. I'm like, I'm sorry, am I sort of reading? the story of my future i i have a lot of and this is for a different <laughs> podcast interesting kind of schemes for getting pregnant as a queer jewish woman and it doesn't look so different from this idea um wow. anyways that's we let's... i would love to hear i would love to hear some of those <laughs> it's just like how can pregnant pregnancy via orgy is i don't know it's something that i'm interested in it's, it's um, viable it's viable it's viable you know like how, how how many it's if only finding a partner that's game for that is kind of really uh the other the other side of it but yes no that's it's uh the whole the whole the whole piece is is all very very gay 
Yeah. So let's let's move on because you mentioned the rabbinic commentaries and I want to get to those as well because I learned a little bit about them in doing this research. Like I said, there are zero mentions of lesbianism or female homoeroticism in the in the Bible, even to legislate against it. Right. There is there are mentions famously of male homosexuality um, in the book of Leviticus and and how it's a no no. Um, so but my question is sort of like, why don't they talk about lesbians and a lot of other people have asked that question too and so there are a couple of theories around this that i think are interesting to like set as a, as a premise for this one is that lesbian sex wouldn't have been considered sex according to the people who wrote the bible um because in the ancient world you have to ha you have to have jizz involved for it to be mm. sex sure so so lesbians don't have that um so it's not sex. And and that will be developed further in, in the rabbinic commentaries. And then there's another even more like, let's take a step back here, folks, theory, where people are just like, nothing women did without men mattered. So it's because sure. women were not considered full people by biblical standards. Yeah. Uh, so that's a pretty, that's a pretty depressy one. Um, yeah. That's a we're, pretty We're messy, famously sort of just... One frozen in the room until men re-enter it and then we come to life it's <laughs> <laughs> kind of how women work <clears throat> pillars of salt um wow see that see see that like uh that was a sodomite joke right there uh, done did it uh, did it on them biblical reference <laughs> um Okay, so when do we start hearing about lesbianism in the ancient Jewish uh, literary tradition. So there are the rabbinic period is this massive period that stretches from 165 BCE to 8900, which is a thousand years, basically. And apparently some of the earliest mentions are of lesbian marriage in a commentary on the book of Leviticus in something called the Sifra. And this is where th this is mentioned because Jewish commentators argue that girl on girl marriage is a practice of Gentile communities in the ancient world. And I'm actually wondering, I've, I've, have read a book about this called same-sex unions in pre-modern europe i think it's probably something a, a similar thing because same-sex citizens were able to pledge themselves to one another in um many mediterranean societies um whether it was for love or for economic reasons or whatever it's like you know better for taxes um is a matter of debate but gay marriage gay civil unions at the very least were a thing 1500 years ago so I wonder if they're talking about that in this. And then there's a, a more, a fuller mention of it comes in the Talmud, which I gather was written in the first half of, of the first millennium um, mm -hmm. AD. And they mention something called mesolelot, which basically just means girls rubbing their parts against one another. It's sure. scissoring. It's scissoring. Um, and uh, the Talmud shocker says it's no good and then they have this big issue the, people don't care about lesbianism or scissoring what they really care about is whether a woman who has practiced mesolelot can marry a priest because only virgins can marry priests that's that's the real issue that yeah. they go back and forth on and some one one side says lesbian sex means you're still a virgin so you can marry a priest again going back to the idea that lesbian sex is not real sex 
And then some say, no, actually, guys, when women get their vaginas out and rub them against each other, it's kind of sexual. Um, so it means for sure, that, for sure. <laughs> I mean, you know, we'll talk about your live experience, maybe. But <laughs> it, it does it does mean that you are no longer a virgin. So that goes back and forth. There's a famous commentator, Moses Maimonides, um, who talks about lesbian sex as only a minor infraction. Um, so he says all of these lesbian virgins should still be able to marry priests. Thank God. But he also thinks that lesbians should receive a light flogging for their transgression. Um, and, and he specifically advises men not to bring their wives to mesolelot loving madams. Um, yeah. Because as, as, with, as in so many other societies, lesbians are viewed as a threat to the institution of marriage and to men in general. You know, it's very hide your kids, hide your wives. So hide your kids, hide your wives, hide your kids, hide your wives, hide your kids, hide your wives. And I kind of love, like, I love these sources because they prove that there must have been some kind of perceived threat from lesbian activity, you know? Um, we, we know the lesbians were there. Like, that's not at issue. But it's almost like they refuse to call it sex because if they did, that would suggest that the lesbian sex had some real power over them, you know. Um, or if or if they acknowledge how good at it women are, uh, the, you know, then that's a real threat to their manhood and to their um, sexual prowess. So they're like, you know what? Let's just rebrand this whole thing. It's not sex. It's a minor infraction. Yeah, and everyone's yeah. like, yeah, totally, totally. Let's it's still a minor infraction that like maybe you want to get in on Maimonides. Yeah. Maimonides known as is also known as Rambam. And it's just like it's <laughs> you said light flogging. I'm like, who's giving the light flog like you, motherfucker? Because right. it, it's giving like Drake. It's giving girls want girls where I'm from. Uh, that <laughs> that Drake song. What was that? I forget the name of it, but it's just like something You're the about Drake scholar here. I am the Drake scholar here, but uh, something about, um, you know, the Drake song that's like, she says she a lesbian, I say me too. There was that one Drake song where he like wrote about himself being a lesbian and uh, everyone <laughs> lost their minds, including me, but in a positive way. I just loved it too much. Say that you a lesbian, girl, me too. Hey, girls want girls where I'm from. Um, <laughs> but it is something about like giving lesbians a light flogging for fucking each other is screaming threesome <laughs> through the male gaze. It's like you're in Absolutely. the room. It's like this is it, it's giving sort they're of just, like they're just trying to find a role. They're just trying it, to find a role. Literally. <laughs> it's it's so role play. Like you come in and this woman's fucking your wife and it's like now I have to now I have to take off the belt and then like get a few licks in myself with my dick. You know what I mean? Like it's it's oh, so yeah. horny. It's so horny. And I didn't <laughs> That just goes to show you the, you know, Talmud is famously sort of like fan fiction for the Torah. It's like the Torah is the written mm. law. And then the Talmud is the oral, the oral law, <laughs> the oral law. And so uh, basically oh, yeah. it's just like all these rabbinic scholars read the Talmud, read, read the Torah and then wrote all this like 
sort of took all these deep dives on it some of which are like s stories based on stories where they sort of like take an element of a story and then like expand upon it giving it the fan fiction vibe um but right. it's essentially a set of laws that have been created out of an interpretation of those original stories in the five books um of moses and and really yes in the five books of moses so it's it's interest it's definitely there's some sexy stuff going there's some sexy commentary going on here um that definitely does feel like it's coming from a place of carnal lust um, hell yeah no from and like i imagine these guys are like you know what it's the year 491 or something like they're in a cold old room somewhere the wine sucks like they gotta get their j jollies you know they're, they're this yeah. is just this is this is fantasy um they're, and they're probably not like they, they are probably the ones who need the flogging more than anyone That's um true. just to wake the fuck up so in conclusion lesbianism is not really mentioned in the earliest jewish sources that we have in the torah and in the um the other books that you mentioned the ketuvim etc but it's it obviously became enough of an issue that jewish scholars were talking and writing about it in the first millennium ad right um so the one i think the one sad thing is that we don't have a lot of texts or any text that i know of from the Jewish lesbian or queer female perspective um, in this period. I, I, I imagine there might be something out there, especially in the Sephardic diaspora, because I think women were kind of like allowed a little more leeway over there. But we know from a lot of these other cultures, uh, Muslim culture, Roman, ancient Roman, Byzantine culture, like all the ones that are floating around at the time, that lesbianism and um, fem queer female sexuality were alive and well. So Jewish women were clearly not immune um, to to this spreading craze of mesolelot. Um, mm. The question is, what happened next for Jewish lesbians? And we'll be right back. Act two, lesbians unite. <sighs> Finally. Finally, we don't really, I have to say, like, in doing my research, I didn't come across a lot um, about Jewish lesbians until we get to the 19th and 20th centuries. I'm sure there is stuff going on in the period, in the, you know, 800 years, 1000 years from 900 to 1800 AD. But that'll have to be for another Jewish lesbian episode, because you will be back, Rachel. Mm, absolutely. But like I said, in the beginning, women, including Jewish women, begin to come out quite literally, of the home in the industrial era. They, they go to work, they go to factories, and many of them begin to live openly as lesbians. They don't really have that word yet, but there's some nebulous identity that's starting to form uh, or identities for um, queer women. And in honor of our lefty, pro-union, pro-labor, rug-munching Rachel, I wanted to bring to light... <laughs> The story of a modern-day Ruth and Naomi that I came across. And it is the story of Pauline Newman and Frida Miller. But mostly the story of Pauline Newman, because she's the Jewess and she's cooler anyway. Yeah. Uh, these, these two were a lesbian activist couple. Pauline was a, Li a Lithuanian Jew who grew up in uh, 
Kovno in Lithuania, wherever that is, and then emigrated at the age of nine or something to America uh, after her father died. Frida was an economics professor. She grew up in Wisconsin. Um, but as I said, this is Pauline's time. She Pauline is a fascinating woman. She was a tireless activist. She started working in a factory at age eight. Um, so she literally grew up in like the 1900s, 1910s, seeing all of the, I mean, I'm actually in, on the Lower East Side right now where she probably lived, um, grew up in, you know, tenement houses, all of that. And by organizing and by educating herself in the Jewish socialist tradition, she, as well as learning to read and write impeccable English, um, she really galvanized a lot of uh, tenant, labor, socialist, and working class suffrage, women's suffrage movements. Um, including or helping to organize one of the largest demonstrations of women workers of her time, um, 20,000 women called the Uprising of the 20,000. Mm, you love to see it. She, we love it. I mean, and she was also clearly a giant dyke. Like she, <laughs> the, the quote that I came across was capable of smoking a cigar with the best of them. So yeah. we know what That's... that means. We know what that means. The writing's <laughs> on the wall there, folks. <laughs> she is, um, you know, she is quite an unorthodox woman. She she eventually wears, like, tweed tailored jackets. She has cropped hair. She's butch, you know? It's she giving Gentleman Jack. It's giving Gentleman it, Jack for those who watch that show. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, and but she's also incredibly smart. So she she works really tirelessly in this balancing act between um, the sort of traditional unions that are much more dominated by male leadership. And then this trade alliance um, called the Women's Trade Union League, where um, women are much more in power. So she, you know, she she's capable of smoking a cigar with the best of them. Um, she's able to speak the language of these guys who run shit because she recognizes that they really don't care very much about women's uh, women workers rights. Uh, and so she does a great job of being that liaison in that more male-dominated organization. But then she also spends a lot of time in the more female-dominated trade union league um, and has that support of, like, a, a female community, you know, which I think is beautiful. Like, her whole life is kind of this balancing act, um, code-switching act between those two communities and environments. Um she refuses to get married. She she is really a, she's a mouthy broad from from the beginning, as we'll as we'll see. Uh, she refuses to get married and have children like most women of her time, and that means she actually lost a lot of the protections that came with that um, at the time, both sort of social and economic. Yeah. Um, so I want to just like honor our girly here and and give a little bit of her life story because it's fucking I mean, you read stories like this and you are like, what are we whining about um, mm -hmm. today? She was she was born to very religious Jewish parents in Kovno, Lithuania in 1890. We don't even know her birthday because, um, you know, the guy wasn't working that day. Literally um, not worth knowing. <laughs> According to him. According to me, I'd love to know it. I'd love to know her birthday. but Of course, we'd love to know it. No one else asks. Um, <laughs> right. her, her dad taught Talmud to the sons of wealthy men in her town. Her mom sold fruit in the town square. Um, enter enterprising young woman, bought it in the countryside, brought it into the town square to sell it at a higher price. 
Um, and she, I'm sort of identifying with mom and dad in this moment. Like I could see myself it, teaching Talmud to the sons of wealthy men is like <laughs> kind of what I do right now, you know? <laughs> totally. It's what you're doing on this podcast right now. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Um, so she is from a very young age incensed that she is not allowed to have an education that women are kind of cordoned off in the um in synagogue like the the women in the congregation have to have to sit on a balcony or something behind a curtain um and and which still happens today just want to be clear that's still a practice in some jewish communities um, oh really? Oh, that's interesting. Didn't know. That. Yeah, like Orthodox um, Jewish communities, the women—they're gonna be—they they throw the women upstairs for sure. <laughs> wow. Cool, cool, cool. Um, so she, uh, Pauline, uh, and Pauline cannot have been her real name. I I don't know what her Lithuanian <laughs> name was. It's just like the most generic, like corn-fed yeah. American Midwestern name. Um, but she eventually campaigns to her she lobbies her dad to get an education he says okay you can go to the sunday school she learns to read and write yiddish and hebrew and she also convinces her dad to let her sit in on the talmud classes um so she like really gets a quite rigorous education a very jewish education from what i can tell um but she's very literate and I think it's interesting also that all of her education is kind of in these like commentaries and sort of questions of law and and tradition and stuff like that, because she will be prepared later on to question all of those things in her um, in her life as an activist. Um, sure. So, yeah, she's living this life where it sucks to be a woman, um, I guess in kind of a lucky turn of events her dad dies in 1901 and her mom is like fuck this i'm moving to new york city um where one of her sons already lives she's eight or nine years old she goes to work in a hairbrush factory um two years later she's working at the very famous triangle shirtwaist factory um famous for a terrible fire uh, that yes. happened later in 1911 that killed 150 odd people um most most of them young jewish and italian immigrant women so that and that was a big sort of turning point for the labor movement in the city and she lived on the lower east side she lived um you know graham street which is just two blocks from where i am was kind of like one of the centers of the lower east side um so she witnesses all of the horrific conditions that people are living in and then what's really interesting is that she gets uh, she continues to educate herself. She reads Yiddish um, papers that are circulated amongst Jewish communities and joins the Socialist Literary Society and starts reading a lot of like classic works of socialist realism. So she loves Charles Dickens um, and she learns perfect English, like reading and writing English through reading Charles Dickens. I mean, the woman, you know, she can't afford to go to classes. There's no, no. Berlitz. Like, she, the, the, the woman is just going to the library and checking out Charles Dickens, which, by the way, I can barely read. Yeah. And yeah. it's like teaching herself perfect English. I mean, it's just so inspiring I mean, and incredible. She's making it work for herself, okay? Like, aside, she she's literally reading Dickens and the Daily Forward, which still exists today, by the way, like amidst... Oh, cool rats and roaches in the lower east side you know what i mean there's just like a little rat reading over her shoulder like she's really <laughs> a little she's, labor, I'm like labor union rat. <laughs> the old labor union rat 
uh, you know, Moisha, the labor union rat. It's, it's... First of all, I'm a rat, which means life is hard. Scurrying past. You know, this is so, uh, th this would make an amazing cartoon, but for, I don't know, the audience would be me as a child, but... <laughs> But the the realism of it, like what her reality is just like, not, this is tough stuff. This is tough stuff. It's it's giving a Rose in Harlem, you know what I mean? Of course, or more so, a Rose, you know, a Rose in Harlem, the the uh, song by Tiana Taylor. But this is, I guess, more a Rose of the Lower East Side. It's very, it's very badass. It is extremely Absolutely. badass. And, and the badassery really accelerates because when she is 16 years old, she is at the center of a massive rent strike. 10,000 families, it's the, it's the largest rent strike to date, I think, in, in American history, uh, or at least New York history. And it sets off decades of tenant activism that will lead to the establishment of rent control, um, which was obviously a huge thing um, some, something I wish that I could be a part of myself um, in this city. But I, I, I read the article from 1907, and she's, she is literally the, the ringleader, that, uh, you know, yeah. 16 years old. Um, it's unbelievable. And she comes to the attention then of the New York Socialist Party, who, and they, uh, they propose her to run for Secretary of State of New York, even though women can't run, they don't have the right to vote. It's like a PR stunt. Um, and she uses it at at the age of 17, having immigrated, you know, nine years before, uh, she uses it as an opportunity to campaign for women's suffrage. Um, so she's just out here from the beginning. I mean, like, it makes me feel yeah. like an absolute nincompoop. She's in these streets and in these books, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> she, she's, no, she's praying with her feet, absolutely. And and I'm, now I'm like, I don't know if you know about Clara Lemlich. She's another classic. Um, yes. Yeah, I'm like, did they know each other, Clara Lemlich? They, for... they definitely did. They definitely did. Yeah. Because they must that's have been the next working thing. together. That's the next thing that the, the next like big thing that she helped organize was the uprising of 20,000, which was a, a big strike of women garment workers in lower Manhattan and the largest strike of women workers in America to date at the time. And uh, Pauline helped organize it, but it was set off by Clara Lemlich being like, yo, let's go on strike. Because all of these people at a meeting were saying, don't go on strike, don't go on strike, it's not going to work, we need our money, blah, blah, blah. And Clara Lemlich at the end is just like, no, let's go on strike. Did this co coincide with the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire? So that was two years later in 1911 that that, that happened. But th this was really important for Pauline because it kind of put her on the map uh, and she became even more you know, ingrained in, in these socialist leaning circles also gave her an opportunity to make friends with a lot of wealthy women. Um, so going outside of her Jewish circles and her knowledge, really interestingly, her knowledge of American and British literature allowed her to like give people comparisons and images of what life on the Lower East Side and in these factories was like, because all these wealthy women are like, I just don't understand it. Explain it to me in Dickens, you know? And like, so she's, she's able like, to it was like, the best of times. It was the worst of times. And they're it like, got it. Got yeah. it. Get it. Get it. Get it. Here's a check. No, like they literally, <laughs> they literally only spoke, you know, literature when it came to poor people. Um, so I, I think that's an amazing, um, an amazing little detail as well. And wealthy women in this uprising uh, joined the picket lines 
uh, to protest police brutality because these girls were getting beaten for being out there on the streets protesting and demanding, you know, a fair wage and to work less than 40 hours a day. You know, and to famously so, have doors that don't lock in factories. Shout out the Triangle Shirtwaist <laughs> Factory Fire, which taught us to, like, not lock doors during a fire. Like, didn't know that we needed an actual fire to learn that lesson, but apparently. Right. I mean, it's so sad. And she was actually, so the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire was, like, a, a massive deal. It was, uh, all these women were caught on the upper floors of a factory. You know, all the buildings that are now, like, um, million dollar lofts and stuff like that back in the day were horrible factories for well you know terrible sweatshops basically for all of these immigrant women many of whom were jewish um so this factory fire really devastates her because she knew many of the victims she had worked at the triangle shirtwaist factory for several years um, so she, it really galvanizes her and she accepts a job in 1913 to start inspecting these effective, you know, sweatshops and lobbying the government for safety standards. Um, she meets the future secretary of labor through this. She makes a lot of political friendships. This is what's also interesting about her is that she's a networker. You know, again, it just blows my mind. Someone who's not from here um, is just so passionate and so, like, gung-ho. She she becomes friends with uh, – she will eventually be friends with, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt, um, who did a lot for the labor movement as well, and especially for women within it. Um, but anyway, where's all the lesbianity in this, yeah. we might ask I, ourselves. I've stopped being horny, Bash. Take me back. <laughs> All right, let's talk about women shacking up and getting babies again. So in 1917, she meets Frida Miller, who I mentioned at the top of this, while she's living in Philadelphia and starting up a branch of the Women's Trade Union League. Um, Frida is an economics instructor at Bryn Mawr, which is boring. Um, and Frida knows it's boring, and she hates academia. So as soon as she meets Saucy Pauline, they leave and become activist girlfriends together. And a year later, surprise, they're living together. Now, Frida is definitely not... Frida is the bottom in this relationship. <laughs> Frida is a bisexual woman. She's a very high-powered woman herself, and she will have a lot of, you know, um, important roles in the labor movement uh, go through the end of World War II and post-World War II era. But they start this very tempestuous, very loving relationship, but tempestuous because Frida is often like going off and having sex with dudes um from what i can tell sure it's a a tale as old as a tale as old as time really yeah it's um, giving me in 2012 continue <laughs> yeah a little moses maimonides action on the side there yeah. um <laughs> so so in 1923 or in 1922 frida gets knocked up with one of these indiscretions and pauline is like no like no big deal honey um let's just have the baby together and but they have to make a plan because they because frida can't have a baby out of wedlock because that that would be the worst thing so instead pauline and frida concoct this story where they're, they're like uh we're going to europe for a year and we are probably going to adopt a baby so if we come back with a baby don't ask any questions because for some reason, two lesbians bringing a baby home from Europe is better than unmarried Frida getting pregnant. Um, Whatever you got really to tell yourselves, ladies. 
Yeah, yeah. So anyway, they go they go have a fabulous trip in Europe, from what I can tell. The baby's born in Italy. They come home. They move to Greenwich Village. Chic as fuck. And they raise this baby together. Two working moms, just like Ruth and Naomi. And Elizabeth grows up with a few other families with two moms in the neighborhood. I mean, this is the 1920s. Like, it's fascinating. I didn't know this happened at all. And, uh, and, and a lot of those families are activists and suffragettes, politically active women. Okay, why don't you just say it? Lesbians. They're lesbians. So, and they, <laughs> they're lesbians. Uh, they care about women. They're lesbians. So, you know, and Elizabeth actually gave, Elizabeth, their, their daughter, Pauline and Frida's daughter, gave a few interviews later in life where she said um, no one in the neighborhood, she went to a progressive school, no one in the neighborhood bothered them, um, no one questioned their family structure, she didn't feel like she was different. But I think, you know, this isn't like, this isn't all like roses and rainbows. Like it is, I think it's basically just because they were lying to her. They, they told her she was adopted. You know, I think they were sort of like, we basically picked you up off the street in in naples or something in italy um frida didn't tell elizabeth that she was her biological mother until she was 17 until elizabeth was 17 years old so i don't think there's a lot of like lesbian realness going on here um it's more flying under the radar and living undercover um which is sad, but I mean, you know, different times and people come up with different strategies to to be accepted and to, you know, not have to deal with flack from from their neighbors. So and then all of these, you know, relationships that Pauline had in the government and with her union colleagues, like they all knew about these two women raising this child together and like they didn't bat an eye. Um, so either it's again like these rabbinic times where they're just like lesbians do not exist. Um, and they're all just looking at, they're like, yeah, it's just two women and a baby. What are you talking about? Or there, there is, you know, I mean, not everyone must've been such an idiot. Like there, there is some acceptance, some quiet radicalism going on here. Um, and, and maybe also women were just a little less concerned with like having a, a name for themselves, like lesbian or bisexual and more concerned with, you know, getting fundamental human rights, like yeah. the vote, you there know, was sort of no time. Yeah. No time for labels. It's also just like, I'm really trying to wrap my mind around the fact that like, I guess they were like, I guess these um, Frida and Pauline were sort of like in a pick your poison moment. It's like either baby out of wedlock or two dykes adopting. You know what I mean? Like both are going to raise some eyebrows and somehow two dykes adopting raised less. I don't know. It's really telling us a lot about society in that time. Yeah. Um, That is the real danger. Lesbians are not a danger in the, in the 1920s, a single woman who knows what she can do. Yeah. Um, So anyway, they raised this child apparently with very few obstacles. Um, and uh, Pauline gets a series of appointments. She works at the, for the um, International Ladies Garment Workers Union. Um, all, all these unions have the have the most roll off the tongue names. Um, mm-hmm. And she is an educator. She she's she works a lot for women's health care. She's also the vice president of the New York and National Women's Trade Union leagues. Um, so she's like a, a, a head honcho, you know. And she she maintains these posts for a really long time. She also advises the White House regularly in the 30s when everyone, you know, during the New Deal, um, 
when everyone's trying to climb out of the Great Depression through these big federal labor programs, um, Pauline and and Frida were both regular guests at uh, Eleanor Roosevelt's um, family mansion in in Hyde Park, um, and uh, and in 1936 she even is covered in the news because Eleanor Roosevelt asks her to bring a group of young uh, women garment worker and textile workers to stay as guests of the first lady for a week at the white house. So she's like, she's a, she's a PR maven as well. You know, she doesn't just, she's not like just a crunchy, like labor progressive, whatever. Like she's really out there in the culture, um, promoting this stuff. Um, she's also a really prolific writer. She writes in all of the union, um, publications that she's associated with. She writes columns like weekly columns for decades basically um and and she therefore is an incredible source for scholars of the early labor movement um so yeah just kind of an incredible life she uh frida died in 1973 uh she died pauline died in 1986 i think she was like 90 something um and uh she dies in her in her daughter's home in elizabeth's home so just kind of a beautiful beautiful little finish so that's a little lefty (laughs) that's a little lefty lesbian life for you stunning giving me a lot of ideas Uh, about sort of (laughs) i don't know how to i just like recreate their story (laughs) like how not sure (laughs) find it found a, I found a baby no I mean every but it's these truly it's another it's a, it's the parallels between um between uh Ruth's pregnancy and Frida's are a bit uncanny um a hundred percent that's why I chose them yeah it's it's definitely some you know it, it's giving me like bash you can't give me two identical narratives that interest me and not you know kind of be pushing me in a direction uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure i don't need to help you whatsoever you've cr- you've got a crafty look about you while i've been reading these stories i'm plotting and scheming over here i'm plotting and scheming <laughs> Um, absolutely. Wow. Proud of them. Proud of all these, proud of all my foremothers and all that they've been up to. Totally. Totally. And like, it's, it's nice to just see some like actual names and, and stories and, and happy endings too. Um, cause this like lesbian history is so, and the history of queer women in general is so often just invisible and like really hard to, you know, pick out. It's it's very Ruth and Naomi, like, were they or weren't they? Um, yeah. So I love just having, like, you know, ending with some 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 lesbian clarity. Now, Absolutely. Speaking of ending, we do like to end with a little pop quiz. So Great. here is our ancient Jewish lesbians pop quiz for this week. Question number one. What was the name of Ruth and Naomi's sperm donor in the Old Testament? Um... Bows, Baos or something? Bows. Close, close. Boaz. 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 I don't know if I'm saying it right. Boaz. It sounds like a Pokemon. <laughs> Boaz. <laughs> it's there's something so Pokemon in it. Bows. Bao Boaz. 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 He's yeah, he's got like spikes and like a shell on the back of him or something like that. A hundred percent. And just donates jizz to 
to to women <laughs> who love each other. He's actually a really rare Pokemon, but <laughs> totally, totally valuable. Um, question number two: What was the medieval word in Judaism for women getting off with other women from the rabbinic oh, period? Oh gosh, this really yeah, uh, it's it's something like meso something meso uh take it home take it home mesothalum mesothalum mesolelot mesolelot a lot of mesolelot mesolelot i know for someone who's been mesello letting you know in the evening for the past three nights in a row. Okay, she's got a vivacious Ooh. love life. Um, with one partner, just only one partner. Uh, it's not like I've just been out here in the streets scissoring with any, you know, Naomi Ruth who crosses my way. Mesello, uh, um, Mesello, what was it again, Bash? Mesolelot. Mesolelot. Where the emphasis falls. Mesolelot. Okay, question number three. What was Pauline Newman's lesbian love child's name? Uh, Elizabeth. Yeah. Okay. See, I just wanted to do that because it's such, it's like not a Jewish name. Uh, it was know? so it's random. Like, I was like, what? Why'd they pick that? It's not giving, it's not giving Ruth. It's not giving Naomi. It's not giving Rachel. It's just, it's not giving any, anything that we know. asked for. But I guess like Pauline is, as we mentioned, kind of random too. So like, <laughs> yeah. it, like who chopped that? Ellis Island just obliterated your shit. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> All right. I know we only have you for a couple of minutes. So I'm, I want to close with one really important segment. Um, typically what we like to do is a straight apology um, where my co-host Lucy, who is unfortunately straight will apologize for something her kind has done in history but today i want to reflect on the long tradition of gay men wronging women and lesbian women in particular it's a gay apology and so i would like to offer you a gay man's apology i'm um, ready for it this is yeah take your take your underwear off um so <laughs> This is this is based on a documentary I watched a few weeks ago called Outrage, which is all about gay male politicians who who've stayed in the closet because it's it's better for their careers. They're all Republicans, of course, and you kind of feel bad for them because you're like, damn, you know, like your life is so sad. But then on the other hand, they are also just vicious Republican bastards um, voting to deny queer people their civil rights at every turn. And so it is with the gentleman whom I'd like to apologize for today, Larry Craig, who is a former Republican senator of Idaho. Now, good old Larry was arrested in 2007 for propositioning a man in a bathroom um, who turned out to be an undercover policeman. Um, and of course, Larry denied everything vehemently. He said he tapped the foot of the man in the next stall because, get this, he has a wide stance on the toilet. That's a direct quote. Don't um, chalk it up to manspreading. Do not no, chalk that shit up to manspreading. You, you tiny little fairy, first of all. You know you <laughs> sit with your with your feet like together, hands on your knees. Relax. He, he then said he was trying to pick up a piece of paper on the bathroom floor while he was shadoobying. Um, and, and then the police officer was like, no, honey, there was no piece of paper on the floor. And finally, he pleaded guilty 
when he was eventually charged with disorderly conduct. And then he backtracked and said he only ple- he only was pleading guilty because he didn't have a lawyer at the time and he was trying to get out of there quickly, which, you know, that that's actually the most believable one. Um, and then there's this whole scandal in 2007, like all these men come forward and claim that Craig, ha- that Larry had tried to pick them up in D.C., in all like bathrooms, gay bars, um, even an REI store, you know, speaking of lesbians. Um, so when Larry is finally caught, um, he, in in this bathroom situation, he of course gets off scot-free, denies, denies, denies. And he had previously voted, um, in favor of the federal marriage amendment, which I don't know if you remember from 2004, which tried to create a literal amendment to the U S constitution that would define marriage as a, as exclusively a union between a man and a woman. Um, he went on to vote to try to bar LGBTQ plus people from serving in the military. He voted against anti-discrimination laws for queer people in the workplace. So on behalf of all gay people, Rachel, I and gay men in particular, I would like to say, I'm sorry. I am sorry for Larry Craig, who is very clearly lost and very sad and has tried to get us down, even though he cannot. I am sorry to you. I I accept your apology on behalf of Larry Craig. You know, there's always going to be <laughs> a few Larry Craigs in the world. Um, at it, it, they're they're either you know they're either so far in the closet they're um, coming out the other side. You know, the other the secret door in the back of the closet that leads to the outside of your house. I don't I don't know that I don't it's, sure 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 I don't know that my words are pouring out of me right now but or they're you know <laughs> they're log cabin republicaning republicaning which is just like being larry craig but then being out it's like you're kind of maybe advocating for the same fuck shit but you're just like public about your sexual proclivities i don't know what's worse i yeah. really don't know what's worse um but bash yeah. i appreciate i appreciate i look i love gay men you know the they i love them they love me i i apart from that the one is time true. that is true <laughs> apart from the one time i got in a physical altercation with a unruly twink um in the <laughs> elevator of lebane <laughs> It's been nothing but positive. That was sort of my own Jay-Z Solange moment. Um, Just this uh, little twink calling me uh, a bitch and me quite literally kicking him in his butt. Again, 2012 Rachel was a different beast. Um, but Bash, it's wow. you know what I say. It is water under the bridge. Um, I appreciate, I appreciate sure. your apology on on behalf of, of of on behalf of Elsie. Thank you, thank you so much, and thank you so much for being with us this week, Rachel. This was a tr- truly illuminating episode um, for me. I learned a lot. I hope you learned something, and we're gonna do more on these Jewish lesbians because you know what? Someone's got to. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Love y'all. Love you. Thanks for joining us this week. Thank you to our gorgeous guest, Rachel Jarofsky. If you like what you hear, give us a little five-star rating on Apple or Spotify. Just like that. Bubby likes when you listen. You can email us at Sebastian at historicalhomos.com. You can also follow us at historical.homos on Instagram and at historicalhomos on TikTok. Thanks, guys. Love you.